Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast of the Grove Church where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that is deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the church lobby every Sunday. Yep, and with that, if you would like uh, to have any questions about the Bible answered by us, uh, we want you to email those questions into info at grove.church. Um, we can't get to every single question every single week, so what we do is the last Friday of every month, we release a podcast. Uh, it's a Q&A podcast from the uh, previous month, and we just take like 20 minutes and we answer your questions, so make sure you're sending those in via email at info at grove.church, our Facebook page. If you have our number, text us, you know, whatever. We want to make sure that you're getting your questions answered. But with that, we are going to be hopping into our Bible talk today. And I'm excited about today uh, because um, we're in the book of Numbers and not a lot of people love the book of Numbers for some reason. It's not um, high on people's favorite book have we, lists. I can't remember. Did we already say the pickup line? We did say the pickup line. Okay. Yeah. Well, for those of you who missed the pickup line, um, the pickup line is this. You walk up to that beautiful girl or that handsome gentleman in church who has their hands raised way high because the higher their hands are raised, the more spiritual they are. Absolutely. Yep. It's biblical. And you look at them and you say, hey, I was reading the book of Numbers the other day and the darndest thing happened. I realized I don't have yours. And here's the thing. This is the last week to use that because after this week, we're no longer reading Numbers in the Bible reading plan. So yep. You can't say, hey, I was reading the book of Deuteronomy. And I realized that I didn't have I yours. I didn't have yours. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I don't sense. have your Deuteronomy. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And so make sure you take advantage of that sweet Bible pickup line. But like we said, we are in numbers this week. Uh, and we are actually going to be focusing in on numbers chapter 31. Um, and this is a long chapter. Um, it's about 50, I, I think it's 54 verses. And so what actually we decided to do is we're going to read the entire chapter. That's a joke. No, we're going to give you a quick little recap of it. And it's an interesting chapter because it all is based on something that happened a few chapters before this in Numbers chapter 20, uh, 25. And in my Bible, it is entitled Vengeance on the Midianites. And so basically, to give you a quick recap, and then we're going to kind of just discuss it a little bit, God speaks to Moses and he tells him to take vengeance on the Midianites uh, for the children of Israel. Chapter uh, 31, like I said, it refers back to chapter 25, and uh, basically it's the debacle of Israel's sin at Baal Peor and the role that the Midianites uh, had played in orchestrating this event. And Moses, uh, basically, in short, Moses gathers a 1,000 men from each tribe. So if you're doing your math, that's 12,000 men, because there was 12 tribes. Nice round number there. Yep. Very nice round number. And um, basically, they set out on a conquest to destroy the Midianites, and they are actually successful. They kill all of the men, and they take captive all of the women and children. And what I think is interesting, before we kind of dive deep into it, is that this was something that God called the Israelites to, and he was saying, hey, this is uh, basically a holy war, and this is something that I'm calling you guys to do. And we can kind of see um, where people get this idea of we serve an angry God from moments like this in scripture where he's saying, go wipe out an entire group of people. And, you know, we, we see this and, and sometimes there's this contrast between, you know, the, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But 
always, we say, how can you have grace without justice? That's one of the phrases that we've been talking about in this. And it's really, God is a God of grace, a God of love, a God of forgiveness, but he's also a God of justice. And God knew that if this wasn't taken care of, the Israelites would fall back into idolatry just like they did in chapter 25. And so what's going on here, everything looks great, and they come back with all of these uh, captives, the, the women and the children. And surprise, surprise, God is not pleased. He's angry um, with the women because they also played a role in Israel's sin. And uh, so what he does, he instructs the Israelites to kill all of the women who had been um, with a man sexually and all of the boys, leaving only the young girls, which is about 16,000 uh, young young girls, according to scripture. And it's kind of this crazy story, and it's kind of um, something that's like, God, are you holding a grudge against what happened in chapter 25? But really, if we peel back the layers, we can actually see um, kind of just a picture of who God is and his love for us. I, I think the moral of this story, the truth within this story, is that this is a picture of a God um, who wants us to destroy the sin that holds a foothold in our life. Um, oftentimes, I don't know about, about you, Evan, but I know for me, when I was growing up, there would be times where I would know I would be struggling with a sin, and I would have these monumental moments, right? I would have these these camp moments, these these small groups that were just phenomenal. And and I would be like, God, look how good I did. I, I destroyed this sin in my life. But I would always allow a little piece of it to stick around. And this is kind of what God is getting at, why he's so frustrated with the Israelites after going out and doing this. And, and not only did, did God, you know, protect them, it, it says in the scriptures that not one of the Israelites was actually killed in this entire thing. So it is God having provision for his Israelites, but they come back and they keep a little bit um, more than they should. Well, and it's a theme that we see um, in the book of Joshua, like when uh, Jericho is destroyed, the guy's name escapes me, but the guy who uh, keeps some extra plunder for himself when it's actually said that it's supposed to just all be dedicated to the Lord. Um, and then later on with, with Saul, uh, King Saul, uh, pretty much the thing that sets his uh, his kingship on the downturn, I would say, is that he doesn't fully... Um, follow the command of God. And it, it kind of actually it reminds me of um, uh, what we were reading through a couple of weeks ago with with Moses and the rock with water. Because for the most part, uh, Moses does obey what God mm-hmm. says, right? You know, if it, like even like today we would say, look, you know, for the most part he, he gets there. But um, he doesn't follow the word of God exactly. And Moses is punished for that. And I think obviously this is a much more macro scale, but a huge theme of Leviticus and Numbers is the fact that God is holy, that God is merciful, but God also has, you know, with the covenant of God, sometimes comes the wrath of God, the anger of God. There's yeah. a whole, we just saw, you know, uh, Korah's rebellion. There's there's punishment um, that goes along with the grace in their hand yeah. at hand. And that's where they get swallowed up by like the Sarlacc pit in the wilderness, right? We cannot confirm that there was a Sarlacc in the pit, but I For like those to those of you who don't know what that is, it's a Star Wars reference. But all in all, what... I think this entire passage of scripture is screaming out at us is that partial obedience is still disobedience. We can do um, everything, you know, we can do, you know, 95% of things right, but that 5% still says we're being disobedient. And and I think, you know, there's no like A minuses in God's eyes. 
Sure. You know what I mean? Like, like for me, not somebody who got a ton of A minuses, but if I got an A minus in school, I was hyped. I was excited. But the reality is there's, you know, with God, it's a pass fail. It's not a, it's not a grading scale. Well, it reminds me too of, uh, cause I think, I think we can talk about this and it can be really deflating because, uh, who, who among us does a perfect job of obeying God all the time? Oh, you don't? <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, um, it, it reminds me of, of um, I believe it's in, in James where it talks about when we break one aspect of the law, we break the whole law. Or in other words, when we don't obey God in one aspect, we're still guilty of disobeying God. And um, I think that we can have a tendency to view that just in a really negative light and let that bring us down. But but honestly, I think it's um, it's a beautiful reminder of the gospel that yeah. when we feel down about the fact that maybe we don't do the best job of fully obeying a fully obeying God or when we do mess up and we break sin and, and we, you know, we, we sin against God, we can remember that our salvation does not rest in our works. Our salvation rests in what Jesus has already done, which I think is a beautiful thing to remember. Love it. That was a great bow to wrap up on that part of the scripture. Oh, thanks, man. So you're saying you want to move on to Deuteronomy? Yes. I said Hey, it right. I was reading Deuteronomy the other day and All I right. realized I don't have yours. Well, Deuteronomy. <laughs> All right. Deuteron- Deuteronomy. I, I struggle Deuteronomy. with that word. Deuteronomy. I struggle with that word so much. Uh, it is the final book of the Pentateuch. So if you remember, um, we introduced the Pentateuch in our first, I think actually our first ever episode. Uh, and it is just a word for the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy wraps it up. Uh, and these are all books written by Moses. Now, Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy is dang it is a, point at me when you want me to say Deuteronomy. I can I can figure that out. So, uh, this book that we're reading uh, is actually it's a little bit interesting because it is written by Moses. However, not the whole book is written by Moses. There's actually a few different sections that I think are kind of interesting. Where um, what you'll see is something will be said, and then there's almost an annotation within the text that tells us a little bit about it. So, you know, it'll say, this took place in this area. And then in parentheses, it'll say, this area is where so-and-so settled with this number of people. Um, And so, when we say that the whole book isn't written by Moses, the vast majority of it is, but we do get these really interesting little add-ons that are kind of, it's context for people who are reading this in the future, so as the book is passed down, um, as future generations begin to read them, some of the things are contextualized for readers, which are really helpful for us because, again, and I, I think C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien was talking about it with C.S. Lewis um, when he was coming to faith. And, and one of the big arguments they said was, if you read the Bible, it doesn't read like myth. It doesn't read like long ago in a faraway land, such and such happened, but really the Bible is full of details. And we even see within the text of the Bible, um, giving details so that people have a better understanding of where and when things take place. Uh, The other part of the book that's not written by Moses is the very last chapter. Uh, The very last chapter deals with Moses dying. So he did not write the chapter about what happened when he died, (laughs) because that would be... That would be the weird. ghost of Moses. Yeah. So uh, you'll you'll notice when you're reading it, the chapter before is a kind of it's poetic in structure. It's Moses's last really words to the people of Israel, and then right after that, the tone shifts, and it's really just kind of a matter of fact statement of like, and then Moses went, and then all these things that happened. We'll we'll talk more about that when we get there. Uh, so with that being said, kind of moving forward, uh, Deuteronomy was written at the end of Moses's life. And it records the generation of Israel that would claim the promised land right before they begin to enter the land with Joshua. And so if you'll remember with, with numbers, 
about half the book takes place with this 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 really sucky generation. Like they just keep disobeying all the time. Like they don't really do much. Uh, and then this new generation comes up. This is the generation that will be led by Joshua and also Caleb into the promised land. They begin to take hold of God's promises. And so Deuteronomy really is this powerful reminder to the people of Israel and to this generation in particular about the importance of God's covenant and the importance of trusting in him. And we said it a few times, um, and I think it comes up during, you know, like half the book of John taking place during the last week of Jesus' life. Pay close attention to the last words of um, especially key Bible characters. And Deuteronomy really is some of Moses' last words. It's the things that he thinks are most important to tell the people of Israel before they go on without him, ultimately, uh, to claim the land that God has promised them. So, uh, a couple helpful things as we're reading through the book, it can be broken up into three separate sections. So, chapters one through four deal with the past. And so, when you're reading those, what you'll see is it's kind of a review of Israel's history. Chapters five through 26, so the, the largest chunk of the book deals with the present. It reviews the laws and the covenants that God has made with Israel. And actually, next week, we're going to talk about... Um, Probably my favorite passage of Deuteronomy where Moses really boils down the law to its essence, but you know, no spoilers. So we'll, we'll save that for next week. Yeah, keep that one in your pocket. You know. Uh, and then section three is chapters 27 through 34, and it deals with the future. Uh, it's a section of hope that brings with it a covenant renewal ceremony and prepares the people to take hold of the promises of God. And so after the history of Israel is reviewed after the covenant of God is reviewed. There's actually a ceremony that Moses puts out that helps the um, that helps the people of Israel to renew the covenant that they have with God as they begin to move forward into the land that God promised them. Yeah, and with that, I we said it when we talked about uh, you know Leviticus. We talked about it when we were talking about Numbers. The same is true with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy can be a book where you just read and you. Are, you just kind of go through the motions because a lot of it's hard to understand. A lot of it is, um, you know, difficult to kind of grasp. And and the reality is just look for um, God's love through this. I think that's a great lens to read books like this through. Um, look and see, you know, why and ask the question, well, why did God do this at the core of who God is? Why did he instill these laws? Mm-hmm. And I think it really helps us have a proper framework to work through when we're reading it, because if not, it just kind of seems monotonous. And, you know, it's like, well, these laws don't even matter to me anymore. And we even got into it. I can't remember if it was on the Q&A question or if it was, it was something Q&A, else. yeah. Yeah, which if you didn't read it, you know, go back and check it out. But there's basically three subsets of the laws. There are the moral laws, there are the civil laws, and then there are the ceremonial laws. And, you know, read them with the the lens of we serve a loving God, you know, and, and, and he hasn't changed. The Bible says he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God is consistent. So his loving nature towards us is consistent. And if we read it in that lens, I truly believe that it just sheds a lot of uh, sheds a lot of light on why the why behind the what. And so, um, man, with that, we are going to be going into um, the last couple chapters of First Corinthians this week. Um, if you don't remember, First uh, Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, and let's just say they did not have anything figured out. Um, they were a very dysfunctional church family, and Paul is just here to basically be Uncle Paul and to. I, I don't even know because uncles don't discipline. But um, yeah, if you ever feel bad about the uh, 
some of the maybe like conflict that we have within church or with people that we know in church. Mm-hmm. Just read, just read First Corinthians. Yeah, and you'll yeah, feel yeah, better you'll about figure it. it out. And then in Second in Second Corinthians, Paul actually apologizes to them for making them feel bad. Well, like, hey, well hey, don't spoil what we're getting to next. Bro. That's a teaser for next week that we're going to cover. But um, I want us to just focus on First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. Love this chapter and just a couple of verses. Um, just remind us of what we're doing things for. It says this in verse 21 through uh, 23 says this. So you see just as in death, excuse me. So you see just as death came into this world through a man, AKA Adam all the way back in Genesis. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, AKA. Wow. I'm getting a FaceTime call on my iPad as I'm reading the scripture. (laughs) (laughs) Verse 22, just, excuse me, verse 21, we're just going to restart here. Bear with me. I thought I had this on airplane mode, but I guess I don't. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, a.k.a. Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, a.k.a. Jesus. Verse 22, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everybody who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. What I love about this, it's a promise. It's it's not something that is just a statement that we say about having eternal life. It's a promise through scripture that, you know, every single one of us, because of the sin that has entered the world, we are all subject to death. Um, we are all um, put on a timetable, essentially, from the moment we take our first breath, you know, the average lifespan is about 84 years old. And the second you take a breath, that, that timer is ticking. But because of that... Um, or because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that timer is just our physical bodies, not our spiritual bodies. And so it says, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everybody who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Fun fact about this passage. This is where we get the concept of the rapture. Um, A lot of people probably don't really realize that the rapture is actually not explicitly talked about in scripture. Um, there's another passage where it says we will be raised and, you know, with him and meet him in the sky. I, I don't know the exact phrase, but the 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 phrase rapture is actually a um, extra biblical way of describing what it looks like to be met again in the, you know, in, in heaven with Jesus. And so um, I just boiling all of this down, we serve a God who, like we were just saying, is consistent in his love towards us. And his love towards us came in the form of his son, Jesus, who then is going to give us a new life. Well, and I think that perfectly segues into really talking about the book of Second Corinthians. Now, Second Corinthians is interesting because it's the second letter in the Bible that Paul writes to Corinth, but it's not the second letter overall that Paul writes to Corinth. And it kind of brings up... Uh, an important issue that not everything that the apostles write is inspired. So we have these two biblical books that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but we also have uh, multiple correspondences that Paul has with the church at Corinth and probably has with many of the other churches that are not in the Bible. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, it actually references uh, this book that he's talking about. And really, a lot of the times he, he's apologizing for his tone in that letter. He's apologizing for getting angry, all these different things. Um, and I think it brings up an important discussion point, uh, in, within second Corinthians. Now, when we look at first Corinthians, uh, we, we joked a lot about how ridiculous some of the things that they're doing are. And a lot of the conflicts 
that are happening in First Corinthians are conflicts between people in the church. And so, it's people in the church uh, doing things that are objectively sinful. It's people in the church fighting with each other. Like, there's a whole section about how they're arguing about whose spiritual gifts are better or they're uh, suing. Mine are. Uh, well, obviously, yours are. Yes, but... <laughs> it's not an argument when it's true. <laughs> and so, the tone of First Corinthians really is Paul reminding us that we need to stay together like we're a body of Christ. We're supposed to function like that. We're not supposed to function outside of each other. Um, second Corinthians is really a message about, um, false teachers Mm -hmm. that have begun to come in and really question who Paul is. They're questioning his apostolic authority. And so there's an aspect of second Corinthians that is, is Paul really, um, defending himself and sharing like, you know, this is what Jesus has done. This is why I was given this authority, all these different things. But the second point that I think is a really interesting one, and especially for us as Christians today to wrestle with is this idea that the gospel is beautiful and the gospel is perfect, but it's delivered by imperfect people. The only gospel preacher who was ever perfect is Jesus. Um, and Jesus is not preaching the gospel anymore. He's actually uh, given that work to us. Part of the Great Commission um, is to go into all the world and make disciples. Or in other words, we are the ones, now that we have the gospel, now that we have the good news of the work of Jesus, we're not supposed to just let it sit with us. We're supposed to tell people about it. We're supposed to make disciples. But with that comes the the reality that none of us are perfect. And I think that a, a great theme in the book of Second Corinthians is, is, is Paul admitting that he's not perfect, that he is following Jesus as best as he can. He's preaching the good news as best he can. But at the end of the day, he's not perfect and I would assume some of the the people in the church at Corinth had put that expectation on him and then he had disappointed them. Yeah, and I think it's I think anytime something is written in scripture, it's it's a good I don't know, rule of thumb to realize that it was written intentionally. And I mean like we even see not to backtrack a little bit, but in like Deuteronomy, we're going to get into some weird laws. And the reality is there was something going on in the time, and so the writer said, "Hey, we have to address this. And that's what Paul's doing in here. Because I don't know, you know, if you've ever seen this, but even as a pastor, like when I'm um, talking with new believers, it's really easy for them to think that I am perfect. Sure. And shocker, um, spoiler alert, I'm not. And I'm just like every other person, just because I have the title of pastor doesn't mean that I'm magically able to not sin. That's not how it works. And so Paul is just being very careful because if he were then to go on and kind of keep this narrative going, that would make him a false teacher. Yeah, and I love the way uh, Brennan Manning says it. And I think I've referenced it on the podcast before, but he describes um, the relationship of Christians, particularly to non-Christians, is it's not that we're better, it's that we're beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. We're not the people who have the bread, but we can point people to where that is. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot of unhealthy issues can come from putting expectations onto people that should not be there. Uh, we shouldn't be expecting people to be perfect. And I actually wanted to read Second Corinthians chapter uh, twelve, verses seven through ten, because I think it's a really famous uh, verse. A lot of us will probably have heard it before. Um, but I think it really does uh, bring to light what's going on here. And so it says in verse 7, this is Paul speaking, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And when we look at the life of Paul, um, he's probably someone like, if you just took his resume and he applied for staff at the church, we probably would not hire him, right? Like his resume is like, well, I killed Christians, but I... <laughs> yeah, I'm an ex-murderer. But I'm but I'm over that now. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. But I... <laughs> and the, like, I don't know, man. You didn't go to jail. <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make is I love this line. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The only way that God's power is demonstrated through humans is in weakness. Yeah. None of us are perfect. We're all fallen. And that's not an excuse for um, particularly spiritual leaders to go do awful things or anything like that. But it is saying that for all of us here, let's make sure that with anyone that we meet, we don't have the expectations of perfection. And then particularly give a break to people who are even um, spiritual leaders above you. I think we just need to realize that we're all humans. We're all in this together. But at the end of the day, we're all we're all sinners running towards Jesus. None of us are perfect. Yeah. And um, if you ever encounter somebody who is saying that they are perfect, just run. You know, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. And, and I know – those of us that are probably listening are like, yeah, duh, but it's not uncommon to hear that from leadership and to be um, spiritually manipulating people to do things. And and that brings us actually to Mark chapter 7 perfectly. It's where we're going to highlight and mark this week. Um, this The Pharisees that Jesus deals with all the time were people who pretended like they had everything together. I mean, mm-hmm. there were so many uh, facades put up, and Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through, um, man, I think it's about 23. We're not going to read all of it. Well, I do think, just as a super quick aside, because this just made me think of it, um, Paul was a Pharisee. He was. And we oftentimes forget that, but Paul actually came out of this culture where it was very much about um, uplifting yourself and just obeying the letter of the law and demonstrating that to other people. And it is interesting to see him do this complete 180 to say... Um, I'm not perfect, but God's power is ma- is made perfect yeah. in my weakness. Yeah, yeah. And so Jesus, he's um with some Pharisees, and he's um teaching, and and the the Mark chapter seven picks up in verse one. It says this: One day, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus, and they noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. Pause. Please wash your hands before you're eating. It's flu season still. Also, not even a spiritual thing, just physically for health. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Wash Uh, your hands. If you don't wash your hands, do not shake my hand in the church lobby because I do not want to get sick. I actually have uh, hand sanitizer not only on me at all times, but in my car, in my office, and all over my house. Just don't want to get the flu. It's not that big of a deal. Good for you. Well, it is a big deal. I don't want the flu. Verse 3, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, did not eat until they had poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Not law, tradition. Hmm. That's important to remember there. Ancient tradition. Similarly, they do not eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they had clung to. Traditions, not laws. Traditions such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, and I love how Jesus replies. 
He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a facade, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And I think it's just so interesting. I mean, we look back you know, at 2 Corinthians and 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 we, we see this idea of, of Paul is trying to say, man, I'm an imperfect person preaching the perfect uh, message of God. And these Pharisees are right there too. They're, they're, they're imperfect people, but the difference is they tried to pretend like they had it all together. Mm-hmm. And I think the lesson that we can take from this is authenticity is the key to actually experiencing everything in our relationship with God, our brokenness, our insufficiencies, the things that we will never be able to measure up to. If we pretend like we're just good enough, like we're never going to actually experience the, the, the grace of God. What Paul says, through my weakness, I am made strong. That is the truest statement ever. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me that when you look at the ministry of Jesus, the the one group of people that he had just almost no patience for is the religious people who refused to accept that they needed a savior. Yeah, um, and I think so often with us as Christians today, our temptation can be to move down that path, and the gospel is a, is a wonderful reminder that. We're not perfect. Like it says in Romans 3, everyone has sinned. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. Thank God for the mercy of God, not for our own um, our own perfection. Yeah. And Jesus kind of concludes this entire statement. Um, he then says to him, to, to them, he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of your father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you for I have vowed to give God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you canceled the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example of things among many others. And I think it's just, it's just an important reminder. There are traditions and there are things in church that we hold on to honestly more than we hold on to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot. There are open hand, there are open handed issues and then there are closed fisted issues and make sure where you're planting your flag is on a closed fisted issue. Right. Don't be the person that's planting your flag on, you know, hand washing, although you should <laughs> don't be that person, be a person that says, you know what? I, I, a lot of stuff I'm going to hold with an open hand, but the thing that I'm going to hold, uh, you know, in my fist and I'm not going to budge on is Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, and his empowerment in my life. And I just think that if we learn to do that, um, not only will our churches thrive more, but I think a lot more people will come to Jesus. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think let's wrap it up there for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of The Grove Church. Uh, You can find all of our different uh, resources and other podcasts on our website at grove.church. We'll see you all next week.